0: Bill, thanks a lot for coming on the podcast. really appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming, man. Hey, um, so you run Minds.com since 2011, right? So it's an alternative social network. If you can give us uh, the 30,000 feet view of Minds.com.
1: Yeah, Minds is an open source crypto social network. Um, basically... Functionally similar to major social platforms, except you know under the hood, we're trying to do everything the opposite. So we actually care about people's privacy. Um, we have end-to-end encryption in our messenger. We All of our code is fully transparent so anyone can inspect our algorithms. Anyone can even clone our whole site and make their own app with our code. Um, we have a First Amendment-based content policy. We're very passionate about free expression and we also reward creators with both crypto and uh, you know dollars cash for their contributions and we're very focused on on revenue sharing and we're also community owned over 1500 members of mines actually own stock in the company. So we sort of are, are building a much more kind of people powered ethos
0: yeah, I'd say you're the Green Bay Packers of social media.
1: Nah. oh, do they have like a co-op?
0: Yeah, they're they're owned by their fans. Nice, for, for at least to a good extent. I don't know if it's 100. Um, I'll take that. Yeah, um, and, you know they really built their brand well um, with a little add-on. When you when you started in 2011. Um, we know that social media has gone crazy. The whole debate about social media really exploded last year, especially with the election. When you started in 2011, what was the rationale behind it? What was your, your, your moment where you said, okay, we need to start minds?
1: Basically, the combination of all of the surveillance scandals and just total lack of, of transparency. I mean, if you, if you look at the leading networks on the planet, You know, most of them, I mean, they're basically all closed source and proprietary, meaning they don't share their code. But then, meanwhile, you have projects like Linux or Wikipedia and Firefox and, you know, major players who are open source and community powered and, you know, not exploiting their users. And they have managed to you know, enter into like the most competitive, you know, they're like t- Wikipedia is like a top 10 site. Mozilla Firefox is a very popular browser. Uh, you know, and we see the same thing happening with Bitcoin. It's like open source software is eating software. So yeah. that's just going to keep happening and it's going to happen in social. Social is going to become more decentralized. It's going to become more respectful of users. going to give users more power and control. It's just where things are going. So, you know, we, we, we kind of, saw that coming back then.
0: Yeah, well, that's a lot of foresight, man. Um, when when we look into open source, a lot of people doubt it in the first place because it's a bit of you exploit the developers. You just said exploit the users. It doesn't do it, right? It exploits the developers, so to speak. And um, I, was, I was talking to Daniel Gross a while ago, who runs an accelerator. And he's like, so it's still being in the open source industry for 10 years. It's still a mystery to him that... There's so much going on in open source, but so little in closed source because there is no monetary incentive, right? There is just an incentive to be rewarded with human recognition that you have produced some great code, but there is no monetary incentive. Mm-hmm. And he says to his surprise, this might outweigh actually the monetary incentive.
1: Oh, the recognition? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a, that's a, there've been studies about it uh, that prove developers are, are much more motivated when they're contributing to open source software as opposed to, you know, some corporation who's just going to hide everything they did forever. And, you know, you don't get to have other people build on top of it, but I would sort of reject that open source cannot be profitable um, because, you know, there are a number of licenses and strategies which can be used, you know, and yeah. a typical like Apache or MIT open source license, which, gives the um, you know whoever's using it the ability to basically take the changes and, and make their stuff proprietary you know there that's one route and there's a lot of that that's a great license um, but you know for instance our code is aGplv3 which is um, a, actually like a copyleft license so anyone can do whatever they want with their code they can monetize it they can make their own app But if they create changes, they have to share the changes with everybody, including us. So that's the difference between a copyleft license and a typical open source license. But then you have things like what Uniswap is doing now. I don't know if you're familiar with them. They're a decentralized trading protocol on Ethereum. Very popular project, um, uniswap.org. For their newest version, they're doing a time-delayed GPL. So basically, for two years, nobody can fork them and compete with them. But after two years, they can. Um, because yeah. look, I mean, you're not going to attract developers if you're not open source at this point.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's a good strategy because, you know, in the end, and we know that code is moving so quickly in the software industry, six months later, a year later, usually whatever you produce is outdated. And I realize this myself when I write code that I was really proud of two years ago. <laughs> and I look back and it's completely worthless because not A, I grow have grown a little, you know, my coding has gotten better, but B, also the solutions that I proposed that were really difficult problems at the time, they're like, they've been solved millions of times now absolutely so this is really fascinating with this whole github resp- repository where we download and upload our code right so we we have this brain this supercomputer brain of all the humans together already works on github right and it's it's quite amazing and we also obviously see this now rolling out to different industries when you look back into the social networks that have sprung up they they're the opposite right they're very closed source and not very open with the users but seeming that they have become extremely popular, right? So they, they have attracted the masses. They have hundred million users. I don't know how many uniques they actually or daily active uniques they have, but Twitter or Facebook, they mm-hmm. have an incredible amount of users. And I'm, I, I, I saw them happening, right? I'm here in Silicon Valley in 2007. I never realized this would be such a big deal. Why do you think they made it so big?
1: Um, well, they tapped into the venture capital nerve And they were able to basically fund it until they made it. And, you know, they were first to market. So when you are the first, you know, really functional social networks coming onto the scene, that's a a big advantage. Um, And I think that, look, I, I give them credit to a certain degree for... Pushing through and and hitting the critical mass and and being the first to really connect the planet, I think that that you know that takes a lot of hard work. They have great designers and developers who work at these companies, uh, researching retention and growth and virality. And so, look, there, there's a lot of great thinkers there, and so they did it because they worked hard and they studied the market and they knew what people wanted and. But they also use dirty tactics with their uh, surveillance in order to grow. So, you know, they basically spy on people in order to grow. They target, you know, they extract uh, contact information. They do all that kind of stuff. So it makes it harder for more, you know, companies to focus on privacy to grow because they're not willing to use the same dirty tricks that that the big networks used. We're sort of relying on more word of mouth and and, uh, sustainable campaigns. So, you know, but, but what I find interesting is that most of the mainstream apps are now all basically the same app. I mean, YouTube, Twitter, Snapchat, LinkedIn, uh, Instagram, all they're the same app. I mean, essentially they have slightly different features, but they all have group chat, they all have feeds. They all have, you know, comments. It, it's, it's the same thing. So it's coalescing where the, humanity has almost sort of decided on the functionality that it likes. That's why we have a lot of those features. You know, our, our unique characteristic is that we have this whole like monetization feature and this whole crypto feature. And we're trying to decentralize the infrastructure, which none of them are. Um, so, yeah, I think that we've, we learned a lot from web two. But web three is sort of flipping web two on its head, but taking what was valuable from it.
0: Yeah, one part that a lot of a lot of researchers would seem very valuable, deem very valuable is the whole engagement algorithm right it's the way that they that facebook i think started with this 2013 they said we don't really care about how many followers subscribers you have what we're really worried about is how we see engagement happening for one particular item and then if it is above a certain criteria we start propagating it to users to your friends basically and then it goes through the whole social graph and it was very. It's very limited, what it can measure, right? So there's only likes, there's comments, there's a very small user base. How long you look at it, a small um, amount of data you actually have. But they started changing that, and they. It's being credited as a way to like a like a like a global voting machine, right? So we vote on whatever is interesting, and that pops up to the to the, to the homepage of whatever you're reading, your feed, right? And that seems to have been adopted now by everyone, more or less. Um, and TikTok seems to go all the way out there, right? So followers don't even count anymore. It only matters how you, you know, viral your video is. But on the other hand, we've also seen that it, it, it bubbles up content that seems, and it, it makes gives people a lens on content that's really strange, right? It's not the reality. Um, and the question is still out there, I think, is a can, a, can there be a better engagement algorithm, A? And B, do you feel... It is it is an experiment worth taking, or we are messing with people's reality too much.
1: Oh, absolutely! I think that they have invaded your newsfeed to a malicious degree, where essentially what you are seeing is what they want you to see. It's what you know. It's it's how it's, it is what they know they can best manipulate you with, and get you to engage with. And you know I'm not anti-algorithm or anything like that for promoting popular content and whatnot. But I, I, you know, the stance that we've taken is, and Minds.com on the newsfeed, it is still reverse chronological. In the discovery feeds, you know, we'll do trending content, and um, you know, I believe users should have the ability to turn on different algorithms that you know fit their taste. I think there's a lot of potentially positive stuff you can do with algorithms to, you know, not necessarily even build echo chambers to to break echo chambers. There's the, there's a lot of interesting experimentation that is is already being done. But when they force your feed, you know, they, they make it so you're not seeing the people's content that you follow. I mean, what is the point? That's why we all signed up for those sites. And so if you built up a million followers on Facebook, suddenly you're reaching 2% of them. I mean, that's a, that's a, a contract uh, violation to me. I mean, the, the contract that everyone signed up for was I follow you, I see your stuff. Now it's, I mean, TikTok's a little bit different because they did that from the beginning. And, but, but, you know, when people spend years building up an audience and then suddenly that audience is like, you can't even reach them. It's just like, okay, this is, I don't trust them. At all, I mean, we pers- you know, we had some huge pages on Facebook that in our early days we would drive a lot of traffic from. But you know for, in- for independent creators, for independent brands, the most important thing is that you maintain access to your users and audience. If you have a middleman in between you and them, your business is, is, has a, a very high risk point, and we know that they will betray you again.
0: Yeah, I mean, I I look at Facebook pages of 80 million subscribers or followers, and you get three likes on most of their posts. And They do do 30 posts a day, and it's really good content, right? It's, It's content that is unique and original, and it's not crazy. It's just, however, I don't know how they build it if they, well, what they in, in invested into this subscriber count, but it clearly is a lost investment and you have to write it off completely. I think that's true for most people who went with this idea on Facebook. And I feel the fraud too. I think that's that's a real problem. When I see it from the other side of the Facebook side, I obviously see that it was probably easy to hack. It was easy to, to, to what Facebook's interested in is spending a lot or, Twitter, a lot of, and you guys, a lot of time on the same platform, right? You want to keep that user as long as possible um, and extract money in terms of advertising revenue, right? So the, 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 I feel the incentives are very strong on the social networking side, on either social networking, um, to keep the user within that ecosystem. And the question is, you know, how far are you willing to go? And obviously Facebook and Twitter, they have a lot of venture capital to answer for. Right? They, they pushed it all the way. But I think the, the business model is the same, right? Because it's free content in the end.
1: Oh, I absolutely understand why they did it. They do know what you want to click on. yeah. And exactly. they do, they, they've proven this. They, they know how to alter your emotions. They know how to keep you hooked. But to me, you know, your news feed is, it's not in its core function that different from like your email inbox. You know, your email inbox is some, you know, if your email provider, if Gmail suddenly started, which actually I've noticed that I don't use them, but I've noticed that they have started to like kind of put certain things in there. But people would freak out. I mean, no one would accept that oh, Gmail's just going to sort of decide how my inbox is ordered. No, yeah. you're going to decide how your inbox is ordered because that is your ground truth for your information and, and your con- and your communications. So the fact that, to me, the news feed is an important source of information for for everyone who spends all their time kind of curating their own feed. And so what these companies have decided is we know better than you uh, what you want. And that I just disagree. Facebook. No, no, no. You do not know more than me. What yeah. I want to read. I want to read. I want full access and they don't, they won't give you full access. I, I mean, they, maybe they say that they'll let you you know, go back into subscription mode, but, and again, you should have the option to tailor your feed the way that you want it. But when you know, there, there are thousands of variables invo- involved in their algorithms and behind the scenes, It's not simply they're feeding you what is most popular, what they think you're going to engage with the most. They're also hiding things that they don't want you to see. So it's not simply a, uh, you know, there's rewards for popular content and then that goes to more people. It's that if they deem these are blacklisted sites or whatnot, they will be hidden from reality.
0: Yeah, I find that interesting. There is, and I don't know if you, you follow that, the, the case study of, of, of um, Daily Wire. Daily Wire is a conservative publisher, right? What they have actually have done, and there's been quite a bit of contru- contru- controversy about that, they have about 20 Facebook pages that have each about a million followers. And I think they inherited, they bought them. I don't know where they got those from. And what they do, they basically push out the whatever they publish on dailywire.com to those news feeds. And apparently, now have more engagements than anyone on Facebook, including CNN and anyone else. I, I don't really know how that worked, but Facebook and Zuckerberg in person um realize this is something that they, they they're okay with, right? So it's 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 a strategy that's very aggressive. So someone is obviously trying to to get enough engagement for these daily wire posts of very conservative in nature where you feel like Facebook would not allow those because they obviously have a left leaning agenda. They always had, I feel um but they've gotten away with this. And when we when we look at, at other conservative accounts that didn't make the cut, especially in in the last two years, mm-hmm. I always felt like Man, these accounts were pushing it a little too hard. Like yes, they were in, in banned for, for reasons that um, the, the, their hardcore conservative agenda. We had this with Alex Jones, definitely played played a role. But I think they pushed whatever they can they can to hack the algorithm in the first place. And maybe that's what annoyed Facebook.
1: Yeah, so um I'm um, so so what's your argument that the ones Do who you got feel, banned pushed too well, hard.
0: I yes, what I what I felt is there was especially in 2020, and maybe that's just the way I look at news. There was a big debate that conservative um, media was was having a hard time on most social media, and they ascribed it to. And I I I'm still surprised by this because all of these organizations are heavily left leaning, and of course they look at stuff that doesn't really vibe with the ideology of most employees. They, of course, look at it in, they try to push them off as much as they can. Let's put it this way, right? It's not, It's not. Um, they, are, they are enforcing their own rules slightly different depending on the content and who's on the other side. Sure. And I was always surprised that they would, they have waited so long to push people off they didn't like on the platform, right? So I wasn't surprised by this, but it seemed like most of the US public was very surprised, surprised by that fact.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, there, are there are always going to be exceptions. So, you know, the daily wire, uh, if you're saying that their reach is, is very high right now, I think that I'm not necessarily surprised by that. You know, they, I'm sure there are people at Facebook who fight for them behind the scenes. And, you know, I think a lot of people, uh, a lot of people hate and a lot of people love Ben Shapiro and, you know, maybe somehow he, the Daily Wire is their argument that they're not being biased, um, which yeah. they which which they like to have. So yeah. you know, I, I I'm I don't subscribe to uh, that Facebook only targets conservatives. I mean, they 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 typically target anti-authoritarian groups across the spectrum. I mean, they I I know I know far left publications who are you know anti-war who were banned. I know. Uh, You know, they banned a bunch of Antifa accounts. They banned, um, I mean, censorship will always come for you um, at the end of the day if you call for it. So, you know, Facebook's terms are very restrictive. And, you know, that's really where my beef is because their terms, essentially what they're doing to the Internet, they are creating chaos on the internet that's what the policies of all of these social media companies are doing by not having a first amendment based policy um at such a critical mass i don't necessarily think that every single social network needs to have a first amendment based policy but when you're that big i think that you kind of need to be taking more of a common carrier approach and you know when they ban someone like alex jones that just polarizes the world more and it doesn't even cause, you know, you can't hide the information. People are still getting as much Alex Jones as they want. Um, and But when you ban for, especially extremists on both sides, that causes them to, in many cases, get violent. Um, there's, there's a number of studies documenting this, showing that censorship uh, exacerbates violence and extremism. So, you know, they would say, oh, this is our policy because we care about a safe community, but actually they're creating a less safe internet.
0: Yeah, I think what, what they are not really spelling out is that even, say, the, the, the accounts they banned is probably 1% of their audience. They, they don't really need this 1% because there's no advertising money in that area anyways. Otherwise, they would keep those accounts, right? So they, they really make a capitalist assertion. Do we make money with this account or not? And how does it reflect back to the rest of our advertisers? And I think the vast majority of content on on Facebook, even if there's a lot of extremes, it's it's fluff, right? So it's right. it's it's personal content. And this is what in the end they want. It's so safe that every advertiser is fine with this. Yes, there is a few on the on the fringes, but they don't really need them for their advertising model. And I think this is what they're really concerned about. It's mm-hmm. they don't feel like they need to be close to the First Amendment, right? They don't feel they're in this government position or they hope they are not that big that they're they, they, they being put into this position, right? They feel like we have this little enterprise, we have this little startup and we need to make money for our investors, which I think they should, right? Which is the capitalist role they should play.
1: But I don't necessarily buy that, you know, I think that if you position it right, a First Amendment policy can, can put you in it a hand to make uh, a position to make more money. I mean, you know, banning Donald Trump like that's definitely a major financial hit that they're taking. And yes, they're weighing the cost benefit of all the bad press that they're going to get if they let them back on uh, because you know, the other social networks aren't doing it and it's this big PR game, but that's just, it's not, it's, it is not a reliable communication infrastructure for the planet. It is a exploitive, network that is just preying upon its users. And it's, it's just not something that I care to give an ounce more of my energy ever again. And I, that's why I don't, <laughs> I don't participate in, in these networks anymore because you don't need to, you know, I get better reach on minds than I ever did on, on Facebook. It's, and, and I know that it's a real, it's reliable, like humanity needs to be thinking about open source decentralized encrypted infrastructure going into the future that is that's it. It, it if if the platform doesn't check those three boxes then it's not sustainable and you know it can be used but it's not what is going to represent the future of humanity that's why we're seeing crypto take off so organically because it it spreads itself the 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 the, the software is so good and beneficial to users that it doesn't need a marketing department. It just spreads.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, this is the future, right? So B- B, the model that you guys have adopted is clearly superior, um, but you still need the users, right? You, you need to wait until all these users have migrated. Right. In terms of users that are really eager to come on Mines right now, what do you, what do you feel? Are those the ones that have all well got banned and who come to Mines and to Gap? Where, where do you recruit most of your users right now? Um,
1: to be honest, we don't we don't do much marketing. Um, we haven't yet, you know, maybe in the future, we will it's, it's very grassroots. Um, you know, we yeah, we do get people who are disillusioned with big tech, like, sure, some people who have been banned, but that's a that's a minority. Um, you know, we had a surge of like half a million users from Thailand when there was a big scandal of surveillance and censorship between the Thai government and Twitter. Same with Vietnam and Facebook you know, very grassroots activist movements around the world where citizens are eager for free speech. You know, in the U S we sort of live in this bubble where journalists are, are calling for censorship, but what they don't really realize is that how tone deaf that comes off to journalists around the world who are living in authoritarian regimes where, you know, they are used to their government actually censoring them. So yeah, I mean, we've had that, you know, we had a big surge of growth when uh, the NSA spying scandals came out back in like, I want to say like 2014, 2015 with Snowden. Um, every time there's a big censorship event for sure, but also anytime there's a scandal in general, like during Cambridge Analytica at Facebook, we saw a huge surge. So it's just like scandal, surge, scandal, surge. That's, that's how it works.
0: Yeah, Gap was, uh, I think, reporting that in January that they had 500,000 users coming on the platform in a week. So when it was really hot, right? So when when Parley um, was banned for... I'm not sure if they're still banned, are they still banned Parley? Yeah, I Store?
1: think they got let back on the App Store.
0: Yeah. <laughs> that is such a joke, I felt. You know, AWS, and, and everyone was literally conspiring against them um, mm-hmm. for a couple of weeks, and then um, they let them back on. Um, when, well, I think you know, they the did have gone.
1: to, they, you know... I'm pretty sure parlor Im- implemented some pretty heinous surveillance software in their app to start detecting, um, certain types of content and they've made a lot of compromises. So, but again, you know, I obviously, uh, am very against what happened to them, but you know, Parler's not open source, they're not encrypted. I don't see anything unique coming from them technologically um it's just sort of like a right wing twitter um yeah. and you know they do have a free speech policy generally not completely which i think is 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 a good thing but you know i just don't to me polarizing is just the wrong answer and i think both of those networks gab and parlor have sort of fallen into the strategy of Uh, you know, ride the divide, they basically know that they can further polarize and attract those disenfranchised users when, you know, for us, we're not willing to do that. It's very important to, you know, people will still say that we're, you know, we, we have more right wingers, I sort of reject that. But we, you know, are very focused on, on not polarizing our community. We're not going to politicize. We're not going to come out, for, you know, as the company and take any political stances. That's just not a sustainable thing for a network to do, and it's not who we are.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's you know, like the Switzerland of social media. I like, I like that. When you when you talk about crypto, how do you, how does your backend look like? I know this is something that. that they had to do, and uh, Gap had to spend a couple of years ago. They had to move all their servers into basically their own data center. They had to rent a warehouse, mm-hmm. and they had to deal with the internet connectivity and the backup power. Right. Um, but they don't use any crypto. What's your backend look like, or what do you have? Actual servers?
1: Yeah, we do. We have both sort of centralized and decentralized components. But with our uh, backend, we just made a breakthrough in terms of a multi-cloud. Uh, Kubernetes clustering system on both. So we have like our backend exists on multiple cloud providers simultaneously. So even if one of them decides that they don't want us, it literally would not matter at all. As long as the cloud platform supports Kubernetes and Terraform, we can sort of coexist in all of them. And that's with Cassandra, which is our sort of cassandra is a decentralized database it's not like a it's not a peer-to-peer database but it is you know able to to exist in in multiple clouds so that's a major benefit that we have which i am almost positive that none of those sites use cassandra uh you can't you can't achieve that with like mysql um or or yeah I'm not sure which ones you can achieve it with completely, but so we have that, um, which is a big deal. And then we, you know, our whole token system runs on Ethereum. So that's obviously decentralized. We have a optional uh, decentralized content storage system that users can post to, which is called Rweave, which is a, uh, it's sort of, it's, it's a blockchain. Uh, but specifically focused on storage. So we built a microservice that interacts with them so that users can uh, post to both our servers and our weave. And that's been really great. We have the whole Web3 infrastructure so that users can like connect with their MetaMask or crypto wallet. And that is starting to become like a decentralized identity layer in the internet, if you, if, you, if you visit a lot of DeFi or Ethereum dApps, you can just sign in with your crypto wallet, you don't need um, anything more than that. And I think that's a really powerful foundation, if you control your keys. And so we also have that we also just implemented the matrix protocol, which is a end to end encrypted decentralized messaging infrastructure. Yeah. Which is federated, so nodes can actually talk to each other. So the Minds um, Matrix node can talk to many other Matrix nodes, and cr- you know, so you can federate with other rooms. You can you can join chat rooms on other servers. So our whole chat system is decentralized now, okay. which is which is a huge benefit. And you know, we're just going piece by piece, uh, trying to we're looking at IPFS now. For more decentralized um, hosting. And yeah, it's, it, you know, a, central, a social network has many functions. So it's like there's not just going to be one back end infrastructure, which necessarily solves every problem. It's like puzzling together something for video and something for identity and something for the content and, you know, DNS and all, all these different pieces.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I was just reading a white paper, and that's, I think, seven, eight years old now, and it's about the infrastructure of Facebook, and Facebook obviously didn't want any decentralization, but what they did, and I found that stunning, they literally have still won MySQL database and lots of memcache and lots of PHP and web servers. And that's how they ran the whole thing until 2015. Um, it's obviously extremely deep. They know everything about that infrastructure. They go down into the specifics in that white paper, but it's an infrastructure that you would not expect. Well, I didn't expect, I knew they used those, but they use just this, like this is their whole stack. And that's what they scaled up with. Um, I'm pretty sure Facebook uses Cassandra
1: timeline. now.
0: They they probably changed it by now. Yeah, yeah, of course. But I I was amazed that they used some old school technology to such a big global level um, until right. 2015. Oh, well, a lot well, of people. A lot of people are talking about moving the whole software company, including you know front end and user interaction to the to the blockchain. Is that something that's feasible? Have you looked into this? Like including your web servers and well, it's like database.
1: the blockchain. You know, it's sort of like what there's different blockchains for different. Purposes, like as I mentioned, Arweave is a blockchain which is more suited for content. Um, But like Ethereum itself is not suited for content. Neither is Bitcoin. Those are more transactional ledgers. Um, And you know, there there are some sort of novel things being done, but it's it's not what they're built for. There's, um, you know, IPFS I think is really interesting because. You know, now that we have the Web3 crypto wallets, you can essentially associate your crypto address uh, with IPFS and then we can back up all of the content users content on IPFS, which is fully decentralized. It's not a blockchain um, It's a file
0: system. Yeah, it's
1: a file system. Interplanetary file system. I, I, I I recommend people look into that. So, you know, there's, there's tools that are decentralized that are better for social networks than blockchains. Blockchains are good for, uh, you know, tipping and uh, that kind of thing. Not, not. I mean, it's again, but again, it depends on the blockchain. I think there are blockchains like you know, Filecoin is out there and. There's there's different tools for different use cases. It's not but it's not putting social network on the blockchain. It's putting a social network on a variety of decentralized tools, including some blockchains.
0: Yeah. Well, like in like in AWS for with run by the blockchain. That's what I thought of. Like a file system and like in, you know, like an EC2 and all these services that they introduce that are very centralized and nobody knows how they work, really. Um that you could speculate about it. And I had Jeff Barton, who's a chief evangelist, and he's like, well, we don't really want people to know to an extent, right? it's closed source by definition because it's our competitive advantage. But maybe there is someone who, who builds like a cloud-based or blockchain, and that obviously would fit your business model very well. But that's Yeah, there are. I mean,
1: there, there's a project called storage s t-o-r-j.io, which is trying to do like an S3 competitor um, there's a bunch of, of projects that are that are going after that um, there's DFINITY, which just came out there's ipfs there's arweave there's there, there, there's a number of options so but but again you know i think that central databases are you know they have their place it's not i i i think it's centralization and decentralization you know you want a balance. And for, cif- for certain functions, it's okay to use centralized databases. It just depends on what you're trying to do. I mean, so, yeah. It, I, I try not to polarize the situation too much there as well because there's amazing innovation happening on centralized databases as well. Yeah.
0: One thing that, obviously, w- w- when I'm asking, Chris, I'm kind of concerned that you, you don't you don't get shut down, you know, when the next parlor shutdown wave Brave comes around, and I hope you, you guys are still excluded, and I hope you have the, the ability to do that. One thing that I think a lot of people struggle with, and I don't know if you've thought about this, is a content moderation policy. So we always moderate content. Right? So there is there's ISIS propaganda we had, and that was always being taken down. Nobody worried about that. There's always a fringe part of that. You just can't have anywhere. Um, how do you, how do you deal with this right now?
1: Yeah. So we have a, a pretty robust content moderation system, uh, and report function. And we actually built a jury system for our appeals process. So, you know, right now we have a report function similar to other networks where, you, you know, if you see terrorist, uh, Material, then you can report it and it'll get taken down because often, oftentimes, most times that's illegal. Um, but we're and we want to bring the jury into all of the processes so that when consensus is reached on a report, then like the users can actually be involved in that decision making. So that's more decentralized governance and yeah but i mean yeah we have lots of we, we have multiple moderators and lots of people in the community who help us find stuff like that so i think people maybe get the wrong idea when you know they hear j- j- just because it's a free speech social network doesn't mean that there are are no boundaries
0: yeah well i think nobody really thought about that we all. Ought- we always we, we lived in these bubbles and we were not really exposed to this debate for so long, right? I studied law and those were you know the limits of free speech were well set and we didn't have a lot of changes like the precedents had been set and nobody really worried about it because it was outside our reality. Now suddenly these things shifted so much in the last five years. I think that's why this debate a lot of hit a lot of people. You know, without any preparation, they don't know what the legal standard is or why we have a legal standard, where it came from, what were the examples we had before, because everything changed so quickly, especially in the last two years. One thing that, that changed a lot and has gotten a lot of momentum is QAnon, right? It's this, this movement that originally came out as 4chan and then 8chan, and those were message boards, completely anonymous, there's no margins required or even encouraged, as far as I know. And they, they came up with some really cooky, um new conspiracy theories that kind of, they drew a little bit from Alex Jones, they drew a little bit from what, what Donald Trump was saying, they, they, they had a really unique mesh. And at some point, I watched a documentary, it was... Um, HBO1? Kind of, uh, that could be, um, I think it was Netflix, and it was about, I okay. uh, think two parts, and I think it, they said 15% of all Americans Strongly, or to a good, are relatively convinced that QAnon is real. Like it's this messenger Q who hmm. has these revelations. It's a bit like like Jesus Christ, right? Um, so it's a large percentage of the population. How many of those have shown shown up on Minds? Are you being taken over by QAnon?
1: No, no, no. I mean, there's I've you know see a handful of posts, but you know, that's a it's a conspiracy theory little group and. I don't know what to say. I mean, if they're threatening violence or, you know, doing anything illegal, then yeah, they need to be treated like everybody else. So I don't, you know, the thing about conspiracy theories is that if you, if you ban them, then you are guaranteed to grow that movement. You know, of course, QAnon people think that, their ideas are valid validated when they get banned from big tech. Oh, you know, big, big tech's in on it. You know, we're now validated because we've, we've been disenfranchised. So yeah, I mean, look, network topology is not that complicated. If you ban massive groups from mainstream social media, those groups go and search alternative social network. We come up. So do a number of others, you know, Free speech, social network. But the thing is that free speech traditionally has not been a political issue. People like Noam Chomsky, on the left, Glenn Greenwald, these types of people, they know that you cannot... Free speech is the foundation of everything. Without free speech, we have nothing, and everything crumbles apart, and eventually, you know, you end up getting silenced. Because it just snowballs on itself when you start silencing people. So, I, I just, you know, there are other ways to address propaganda and misinformation than banning it.
0: Yeah, well, it's all about the definitions, right? What is, what, what is actually a fringe? What should be banned? What is, what is yeah, but fringe, violence. I mean,
1: again, th- that's history, why right? I th- think...
0: Th- th- this whole debate.
1: Fringe is just a word, you know, you could call there's so many great thinkers throughout history who would who were burned at the stake for what they were saying. You know, fringe, you know, sometimes it's it's crazy. Absolutely. And sometimes it's completely just lunatics. Other times, fringe is exactly what you need to evolve. I mean, most breakthroughs, scientific breakthroughs, you know, these people were called crazy immediately so you know you want to ban when you ban all the crazy people you will end up banning a percentage of brilliant people so that's just a fact of history it's we've seen it time and time again and it's happening now but again this is the problem a lot of the a lot of the actual lunatics you know are being reinforced through this process so you know in terms of definitions the first amendment the U.S., I think, does the best job with free speech law. And, you know, that's why we are in the position that we're in. And there's tons of precedent to work with in terms of what defines incitement of violence. What, but, but, you know, specifically, the U.S. does not have hate speech laws. And, you know, no one likes hate speech, but even places like the ACLU have admitted that you know you can fight hate speech with more speech so i don't know So this philosophy is being attacked right now and i but i i don't think it's going to be able to survive i think a lot of the people who think that they're sort of these moral crusaders calling for censorship are just ultimately going to be embarrassed
0: yeah well i i you know i grew up in eastern germany I, I know you can't ban people forever. So these, the, the, amount of, the, the, the largest amount of freedom you can provide to people will increase their own productivity the most. And sooner or later you're just far behind and you can keep it up um, for 10, 20, maybe 30 years. But if you don't allow the maximum amount of freedom possible, mm. You, you're stuck in the past. You, you're stuck in something that's in the past. It's very well-regulated, everyone's happy, but everyone's also poor. Sooner or later, you're very poor compared to everyone around you who has more freedom. Mm. So the most freedom you can afford, and obviously there need to be limits, and then we're back to, okay, what are the limits? But if if we reduce freedom, and that also includes diversity, you know, freedom of any kinds of thoughts um, and also action as much as we, we possibly can, I think that's the... The, um, you look again and again in human history, this is where geniuses come from. And these geniuses come from these fringes, as you just said, right? But nobody knew that, but like Nietzsche, right? Nietzsche, for forever, he was considered an idiot and some, some crazy person. And then he was dead 100 years later. He was considered the philosopher to read, which was really odd. It would have surprised him too. So, well, it's, it's very
1: similar to what you were saying about closed-source software. Like, it gets left behind. When you limit access to information, innovation takes a hit. So, you know, the same would apply for the freedoms of, uh, a, of a society. So, you know, and yeah, there, there, there are trade-offs and there are things that you, you need to be uh, cognizant of to, to not, you know, because within free societies, uh, bad ideas can, uh, take root, but you know, I think that we, we have the evidence of history. So I, 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 don't think that there's suddenly going to be some new, uh, you know, more strict version of the first amendment that suddenly becomes like a more battle tested framework for speech. I, it, it's just, it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. If anything, it would have to be a new, a new, uh, system of law, which is more free
0: that That would be good for innovation, right but it will the pr- problem is a little bit that we we are now battling on a very different layer. We were not prepared so when Locke thought about that and when the, the the original founding fathers thought about it, these were all ideas they put into the government as a you know they they knew this from Britain that the government would come down on them and put them in prison that's not it's kind of lost its relevance a little because we have this mega monopoly tech companies out there who are not necessarily bound by those um right to, Constitutionally, but basically have the same power. And obviously, they're being hijacked, so to speak, by people who, well, they they don't have the same amount of openness, or they don't think the same amount of openness is historically warranted and gives you the better future. I think this is all we'll be struggling about: what is the better future? Is this a utopia where we are more limited in certain areas but have more freedom in others, or do we are on the side of we have more freedom in, in thoughts and and speech, and that gives us a better future? I think it's a it's a it's a good debate. It's a useful debate to have. The question is. Is this debate doesn't even matter because these companies do whatever they can, right? Unless we force them not to. And it does seem like that's a really good idea. Either.
1: I'm not holding my breath that they're going to change. I personally think that if one of the big tech companies changed their policy, pivoted to First Amendment, that that would actually be the best des- business decision that will cause one of them to break into the lead. Uh, by far, I think it would be a great, I don't, but I also don't necessarily think that they should be forced because that arguably violates free speech, but this is really the debate that's going on in the U S right now. Like we saw just uh, Supreme court justice, Clarence Thomas come out recently and say that he sort of endorses the common carrier approach. Like once you reach a certain, like a hundred million users or, or something like that, that you know things change and that you should start to be treated as more of a utility i think that 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 does make sense um but everyone could switch I, from
0: facebook to mines so that's what i'm seeing with, with energy it's not feasible i can't switch to 15 other providers here i just can't because there's only pg and e where i live but with, with social media this makes no sense to me because everyone could go to mine some more and could have exactly what we want the full freedom but some people or haven't done, made this transition yet. And that's the perplexing thing to me. So it's a, it's the short term. I'm happy with Facebook. My limbic brain is entertained. And this long term, we're all better off with more speech. I think most of us realize this, but somehow it doesn't really translate into actions yet. It will eventually.
1: Yeah, I think it's starting to, and that's why I'm not necessarily an advocate of like, heavy regulation and, and forcing you know i do think that the market is in the process of of making this decision this is why we're seeing you know over 100 million people using bitcoin this is why we're seeing what's happening in the crypto market happen this is why you know brave browser is doing extremely well this is why DuckDuckGo, the privacy search engine is growing this is why we're growing this is why others in the space are growing, you know, it's not on the scale of like hundreds of millions yet, but to be honest, a hundred million people in Bitcoin, that's a lot. Yeah. So, you know, that, that that's in typically the people who are interested in Bitcoin or people who are interested in these ideas in general. Um, so I think it's happening. I think over the next five years, we're, we're actually, we are going to see, um, a, an alternative, break into the mainstream.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. It's it's going to happen. I think what really happened what really happened in 2020 this whole controversy, controversy brought out these facts about what's actually going on with social media. I didn't know 5 years ago, right? I could have figured it out, but I was too lazy, right? I was ignorant. And but now it's bubbled into a wider scale of society. Another thing I wanted to 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 talk to you about is and I had this a similar topic with Thomas Power. And we were, we were kind of debating, and he was on that position, you know, there's COVID, and we, were, we, we all put these multiple layers of, of technology, mostly social networks, in between us. And he said, well, that's a temporary thing, and in the end, what we want is a real deep connection to someone, or to a lot of people, possibly, obviously, in, in, where we have a deep trust. But the opposite seems to happen, not just with COVID. I think that's that's predating COVID, is that we put layers and layers and layers of whatever we want to do. There's a new app, and it puts literally the profile, the avatar in front of our eyes. But the person moves further and further away, and you can see there's most cities. Nobody talks to anyone anymore. So it's it's a it's a it's an unwritten law. If you talk to someone, then you're a crazy person. Um, do you think that's going to continue, or we will we'll go back, especially when we come out of COVID and actually talk to people anymore? That because that's a good thing.
1: Yeah, I think that we will talk to people again. I think okay. that uh, it's not it's not easy, though. I mean, COVID has has caused a total disruption to social norms and you know how people behave in public. But I think it was I think today actually the CDC suddenly said that you don't if you know, need to wear ma- masks outside if you're vaccinated uh so that's today's version of truth we'll see we'll see what tomorrow's is but i people crave human connection i think that apps actually are in a position to help facilitate human connection that's one of the things i like about dating apps is that you know their primary purpose is to bring people together in real life and um you know, there's this one dating app that has a slogan, I forget which one, but it has a slogan, you know, the app designed to be deleted, which I think is a great slogan. And yeah. it it can facilitate amazing connections, um, I know from experience. And so I think more big apps could be focusing on that. We're uh, launching a whole live event series, and I do want to build more functionality into the app to help people connect offline. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's going to take time for things to get back to normal. And, you know, at the same time, technology is going to continue to se- – it's going to keep separating us and build, bringing us together simultaneously as we go into the future. You know, simultaneously, we're going to have people sitting in their VR goggles um, for, you know, five-day benders and, you know, lo- seeing nobody. And then, at the, you know, other people – will use it and you know go meet someone that they fall in love with and marry. So it's um it's it's shades of gray.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's very wise. I I, I do feel that there is this this push towards we 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 want to see because we we always want to find better matches for us, right? Better better abilities or more commonalities with someone else in in, and that's not necessarily just a dating thing that's just we we look for people who are a bit like us or or in need of what we can offer right on the other hand um, as a personality profile or as in a professional area so that you you ideally want to talk to all 9 billion people before you find that one person you know that's in, in a dating market that's going to be your mate or that's going to be your employer because that's the best fit for you when you don't know that before. Oh, exactly. Yeah,
1: dating and and recruiting is same thing. It's just connecting people for different or meetup or uh, yeah. whatever purpose. It's it, it's it's more of a uh, a tool to connect based on uh, common interests and skills.
0: What I'm trying to say is I can't physically evaluate 9 billion other people if they are a good fit for me, right? Or okay. if they say, we can say, 100 million different companies I could potentially work for. But my digital arbiter, my digital consciousness, so to speak, right now it's just a profile and some information, but it could easily be something more interactive in the next couple of years. That that arbiter could go to 200 million companies and have like a little recruiting Document with their recruiting a meeting with that with their AI, and then we could find out if that what's the best fit, right? I could narrow it down from 200 million to 50 or 20 or whatever that I can put a human decision to. And I think this is a human desire that will go on. And what I'm trying to say is, we will see more layers and layers of technology for this in order to get to these big numbers. Ideally, we want to talk to the whole universe before we make a decision, right? That would be the best case scenario,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which we can't do with our brains or our physical appearance
1: absolutely yeah and you know look it's not always about that i think that there's a spontaneity um offline which is sort of irreplaceable and but yeah i mean look the internet is the central nervous system or brain of whatever metaphor you want to make for you know what it is of humanity but it's it's an extension of us now and it's helping bring recommendations to it and we just need to make sure that the, the engine behind those recommendations is acting in the benefit of humanity, and because you can still give great recommendations without screwing over the users. It's, yeah. It is possible. It's not like we have to exist in this world where, you know, ethical technology um, is incapable of producing similar effects so it's just it's more of the lazy way out i we need to be more innovative and understand you know building better consent mechanisms into all of the suggestions and and all that and look we're gonna get there i mean we just saw apple you know and apple i'm no fan of but they, they just uh you know put through a pretty serious uh change to their app store policy where apps you know aren't allowed to just spy on everybody
0: i can't believe this feature even existed I know, yeah. That, that uh, literally any app that you have installed, and I didn't know that like with Uber, Uber would, would check what you're doing on Lyft and they, they would get that data by default. Right. I, was, I was always amazed the amount of data and all the, obviously the GPS data, we, we, they kind of, Apple put a reminder for that in, but all the other information, like Facebook has an SDK that's in 40, 50% of all published apps, more in Google Play than Apple Store. But this is, you don't even know it's there. And they collect all your data and they share all your data. So you have a unique identifier that leads back to you more or less. Even if you don't have a Facebook account, you've never been on Facebook. You're fully tracked.
1: Absolutely. This is the most important (laughs) thing people need to realize is that, and as you're particularly, I'm speaking to app builders. It is not okay to just be using these SDKs. It, it, we it, we it, we need to make it socially unacceptable to to use those APIs, and you know your job is going to be a little bit harder, but you know your users are going to appreciate you more, and you're also then not going to be locked in five years down the road when Facebook or Google want to change their API and suddenly you know your whole app you know breaks because of something that they did. So there's multiple benefits to your business for you know not relying on on those tools, but we've made the decision we're just you know we don't have any uh, third-party uh, to- tracking tools in our code. you know we have a hundred percent score when you go the brave the cool thing about the Brave browser is that you can you know kind of get this score of every site that you visit when you click on the little lion um, and yeah we've've. yeah it's cool there's if you click on the line you can see like how many um how many items are blocked because by default brave will will block uh the invasive stuff
0: yeah i didn't know that's that's quite cool when you when you look into the future a little bit i think we touched on that earlier what will what do you think will the the landscape look like in 10 years from now? We still have a similar kind of social network that we're, we're, we're used to, now it's the feed. you you uh, exemplified that earlier, and it will be with more open platforms. Is that the future, or is there something really big coming that you might already know?
1: I think that we're going to see new players enter the space who have tech that respects your freedom better and they're going to start to saturate and we're also going to see the big players make changes. You know, I don't think that we live in a world where Facebook and Twitter and Google are going to like become MySpace. I, I, I think we're too deep. So, they, as you mentioned, you know, 30% of apps have these SDKs. MySpace never had that. MySpace was never powering you know, half of the apps, they, they were, you know, their own silo. So these mainstream social networks are, are much more embedded into society than anything in the past. So, but like, like you're seeing with Apple, you know, they made this change. Social pressure, I think over time will force them to change more. I think that what we do know is that big tech caves to, you know, social and political pressure pretty, pretty easily. So if yeah. the users can start to get more vocal, I think that they, they will change, but you know, cause the funny ironic part of this is that the left and the right both hate Facebook. Everybody does. But yeah. first, you know, I think everybody hates the surveillance across the political spectrum, but then you have, people on the left who are calling for more censorship against like misinformation and, and, you know, hate speech. And then people on the right who are taking more of the free speech approach. However, there, you know, there are exceptions to both of both of those rules. And, you know, there are people on the left who support free speech and people on the right who support censorship, but everybody's pissed about the surveillance. So that's a funny thing that we don't talk about enough that everybody kind of agrees on. And... But the killer,
0: the kicker is with that that we've realized this for a couple of years now, like some earlier than later, you much earlier than everyone else, but it takes a while for these things to, to come out. But we're still using Facebook, like I do, and I know how bad it is, but I still, I still use Twitter, and I know how bad it is, and it feel, mm-hmm. makes me feel bad many times. But I don't know if it's the addictive scenario, because in the end, I need to reach people, right? We are all in the people business. And we want to reach people. And so the the draw to go to the place, and that's the uh, the winner takes it all uh, internet approach. We we need to reach people. So if the people are there, we have to deal with the surveillance. I would be interested to run an
1: experiment with you. Um, Have you ever tried deactivating Facebook even for a period of time?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. For like a year or so.
1: Okay, so I would be curious because I think that this is the position that many people are in where they're afraid to go because they don't want to lose contact with the people that they think that they're reaching. But what they don't realize is that, you know, for someone trying to say, get a podcast out there, get more eyeballs on it, get more listens. A lot of times, you know, we have actually proven that with small to medium sized brands that they can get more reach on minds than Facebook and Twitter because even though we're a fraction of the size, you can actually reach people because we have this whole token reward system where you earn tokens and one token actually is worth a thousand views. So you can boost your posts with your tokens for more views. And this acts as an amazing marketing tool for, for brands. So I would, it would be interesting to do an experiment where we AB test, um, you know, minds versus your podcast on Facebook. And I would bet that we can get better reach. You could get better reach on minds, and so it's just ripping off the bandaid. I mean, I have, um, you know, once you delete, we're go yeah, gonna do out. this.
0: Gonna, well, we're gonna do this. Um, we, we never did anything. We have an account, but we never did any marketing months. Mm-hmm.
1: Um, yeah, let's let, uh, look. I expect that we need to be competitive and we need to be able to win that test. So, you know, maybe uh, we can do a follow up podcast in a few months and uh, and see and see <laughs> yeah. how the results are.
0: Yeah, I like that. I like that. That's a really good idea. Well, Bill, I, I learned so much. Um, I'm, I'm really looking forward to our next podcast. I Thanks for taking the time. I know you. Thanks for having now. me. I really enjoyed it. Yep. Same here. Same here. Yep. Until Find next time. Find me uh,
1: definitely, uh, feel free to hit me up. Anyone who's listening at minds.com slash opman, O-T-T-M-A-N.
0: Okay, Bill, take it easy. Cheers. Talk soon. Cool. Bye-bye. Bye.